Well, we'll let, uh, as usual, let people come into the room. This is going to be a <laughs> this is going to be a good one. This is going to be good ones. really good. Yeah, they're all good. This is going to be a great one. We uh, we have the pleasure of Dr. Chris Nichols and uh, my good friend John Kemp. This and John sitting beside me. So this is just this is unreal. So I'm here to keep you straight. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you. So my my usual uh, giddy up. Let's go. This is going to be fun. Uh, first of all, I want to I want to ask each of you folks, how are you doing this evening, Chris? Uh, Chris, how you doing? Um, I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. I'm excited about the meeting we just had in Sacramento, and um, you know, I, I'm feeling re-energized, I guess, again uh, to get things moving. Well, uh, we're going to talk about that because there's a I've never seen you so excited as you were after someone's presentation. We'll talk about that in a little bit. <laughs> that, that, was, that was good stuff. John, yes. how are you doing? I am uh, simultaneously excited, tired, exhausted and tired, yeah. and excited. <laughs> that didn't come out right. But whatever, you can tell that something isn't quite right up there. Right now. <laughs> I've just had three really long days, um, but you know, they were three really enjoyable days because I got to meet some really great folks and I got to listen to some awesome presentations at the event. And then today yeah. I got to go out and visit a couple of farms where some really amazing stuff is happening. Yeah, well, good. Well, my as usual again, folks, I do the same thing. I'm going to start with Chris. Chris, what what's on your mind right now? What what have you been thinking about for the last 24, 48 hours? What what's right there to, at the tip of your brain? Um. Well, I guess again, you know, just sort of what we were gonna, what we sort of alluded to with uh, James White talking about rhizophagy and and the microorganisms that are inside plants, plant roots, and and plant foliar tissue and the roles that they can play in nutrient cycling and how that can improve all of the efficiencies, water use efficiencies, nutrient use efficiencies, and uh, maintain productivity and increase resilience. And so it's it's a beautiful microbial world and we just live here and I'm really happy to, to be living surrounded by microbes. Yeah, and, and I'm gonna tell you what folks, uh, what, what both John there's a truck going by. Let's let that go by. What what John and Chris both have alluded to is the Acres Healthy Soil Summit that was in Sacramento, California. It was it was awesome. Uh, the lineup of speakers that were there. Obviously, these two folks were there. Um, and what Chris is referring to, I've never seen Chris. I've never seen you so excited. And I believe the words that you said were. Um, you knew when when Dr. White was done presenting, you said something like, "I knew these were were happening, but you've finally given me the evidence and the proof that it that it that it is happening." Yeah, definitely. Um, I apologize to everyone. Just to let you know, I'm in an airport in Seattle, That's okay. uh, so I'm going to kind of mute when I can so that you don't get airport announcements. But yeah, I was I was extremely excited. Um, you know, there's so many of these things that we see happening and that we think are, are occurring, but to actually see the images and the videos that uh, James White presented, uh, Dr. White is a professor at Rutgers University, and um, his team has some really great images of uh, bacteria actually being expelled from roots into the rhizosphere, and um, how that is, you know, and how they're Sort of being absorbed and cycled within the rhizosphere and within foliar tissue to really help to manage and i was just really interested too in what he was talking about with um, the production of uh, superoxides and kind of an exchange between the plants and these bacteria in the rhizosphere using the, the superoxides to actually stimulate um, nitrous oxide nitric oxide uh, formation and that being able to then get into the plant and address uh, many of the nitrogen needs that the plants have. So it's yeah. sort of nitrogen fixation that isn't isn't a, a, a um, 
rhizobium based uh, type of nitrogen fixation, nitrogenase based type of nitrogen fixation. It's, it's a different type of nitrogen fixation that, um, you know, I think is, is a really exciting uh, frontier. Again, I think we've, we've seen this because the math doesn't always work out when we look at nutrients and nutrient cycling. And it's like, I don't get it somewhere there. The nutrients are coming from somewhere and they're getting in there. And I don't know how all of this is happening and the math doesn't work for just the traditional sources, but um, to really be able to see some of these um, new sources and to realize just how much of an intimate role uh, the bacteria are going to be playing in the, the rhizosphere is, is just really incredible. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What I, what I became so excited about uh, from Dr. White's presentation was the realization that these processes are occurring not just in the rhizosphere and in the root system, but in the leaves constantly. Yeah. We can actually have these endophytes in, in the leaves um, that are actually synthesizing nitrogen inside the leaf constantly and providing it to the plant. And that is, that's really exciting, obviously for lots of reasons, but uh, yeah, let's hope that nitrogen, commercial nitrogen fertilizer keeps getting more expensive so that there's some motivation to figure this out. Exactly, exactly. Well, John, I want to ask you the same question I asked Chris. What, what's on your mind? I mean, you've been through three days of a lot here. What, <laughs> what, what's on, what are you thinking about right now? Well, um, a couple of items. One, uh, I, I had a couple of really amazing experiences today. and. Uh, and, and some a couple, sad experience as well. Um, the one of the amazing experiences was I just came back from a wine uh, a vineyard that has some sixty plus year old wine grapes, and that that have been organic since forever and organically certified, no pesticides, no fungicides. And um, the I, I learned something new. I learned that once wine grapes, uh, grapevines cross the threshold of roughly about 50 years, once they start becoming older than 50 years, they develop kind of this inherent wisdom of climate and space and place where they're at. And they begin changing their expression. They start developing smaller clusters of grapes and the grapes themselves become smaller and they develop this completely different flavor profile to the tune of $10,000 a bottle of wine from 50 plus year old wine grapes. <laughs> so wow, <laughs> that was really intriguing. Um, but what was also intriguing is that um, in 2000, in this valley, there were lots of wildfires and uh, we're in Napa right now. And um, when you have these wildfires and smoke in the atmosphere, there's some of the volatiles in the smoke that can actually be absorbed by the wine grapes and they taint the wine. And so most growers of Cabernet wine just dropped their grapes on the ground and never even harvested them, except for this vineyard. Uh, this organic vineyard, they had a 100% crop, harvested all of it, made extraordinary quality wine, and had none of the volatile components from the smoke. And the grower's hypothesis is that uh, they are not applying any fungicides, where all the conventional growers are applying fungicides uh, for mildew control, and that the fungicides, in order for the fungicides to be effective, they often have adjuvants added to them and um, emulsifiers to allow the active ingredients to get past the waxy oil layer on the leaf surface. So they're essentially trying to solubilize the waxes and the oils to get into the leaf. And in the case of the organic grapes, they didn't have those adjuvants and those uh, emulsifiers added. So they had this really this wax coating on the outside of the grape that was able to maintain its integrity and none of the smoke volatiles made it in. And when you think about that, what that makes me wonder about is when we use fungicides on commercial crops, what else are they now being exposed to in the atmosphere that they would otherwise be protected from that we may not be aware of that could potentially be damaging. So anyway, really fascinating story. Um, and the other piece that I experienced today that really made me sad, um, I visited a walnut operation that is organically certified. We've been working with them and have become very close friends for a number of years with this family. Um, the, the senior couple is now in their 70s. 
and uh, they have an amazing, they have some of the best tasting organic walnuts that I have ever had. Uh, really high bricks levels, really high quality. But uh, this couple transitioned to organic farming um, some over a decade ago, but they spent much of their life before that applying pesticides. Now this is the most, I've become really close friends with this, with this family. We've exchanged Christmas gifts and uh, they are the kind of kindly grandfatherly people that you develop this instant rapport with, like you've known them forever. And today I learned that they have both been diagnosed with late stage cancer. And that was really hard. That was really hard. Yeah. It's how is it that we have come as a culture to accept as normal that half of the people alive today are going to get cancer in their lifetime? That's just, it's a state of affairs that should have all of us up in arms. And yet, we get all excited about COVID, which is a fraction of the death rate of cancer and a fraction of the anyway I don't, uh, of the pathology of cancer and uh, we don't have nearly the outrage because it is not as immediate and it's not as upfront so um, I think it's fair to attribute a significant amount of the toxins that this uh, couple has experienced that have led to this to the agricultural pesticide applications we know that that can be the case so at any rate um, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about right at the moment yeah so you had very high day and then very low day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I feel for you because when I sit, when I think back about our family, um, there's a lot of cancer in our family, a lot of, lot of disease. And I'm, I'm just not, I'm not doing it. I, I don't care if we have a 50% reduction in yield. I'm not, I'm not going back because the future demands that that we figure out how to do this without all of these caustic inputs. Rick, I need you to lose that mantra. You're not going to lose 50% yields. Everything we've been talking no. about at Regenerative Agriculture is you're going to maintain or increase yields above the conventional baseline. Yeah, I know. I, I don't. I'm just saying if it was well, stop, the case. Stop saying that. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going, we're going to have better yields, great yields, and it's going to be healthy. Yes. All right. Now, Chris, I'd like to ask you, uh, you're, why are you in Canada now? And, and what, what's your big project? What are you working on? So um, I moved from the U.S. to Canada uh, and have been working um, in Alberta on a project where we are doing what's called predict soil mapping. Um, we take uh, about um, what we're referred to as sort of 60 layers, but 60 different types of data points that are geospatial types of data points um, that have been collected. And we use that to map out where we can take soil samples. And um, basically what the computer algorithm does that is determining where to soil sample is where there are unique spots on the landscape it identifies that that's where it is that we should soil sample instead of sort of taking a, a grid design and sometimes uh, compositing samples and kind of losing some unique characteristics in that composite, we're actually looking for unique spots. And um, just to kind of give you an example of the, the power of the technology, we did this for the, the province of Alberta. Uh, and Wait a second, uh, we just lost you, Chris. Chris, wait a second. We lost your we lost your audio. No, still don't hear you. Is it on our end? No, I don't think so. No. It's okay. Keep trying. Well, let's wait on Chris to come back. Um, John, Chris, you take take your time. We're, I'm going to move on to John. If you can hear us, that's okay. Um, John, let's talk about this conference. I mean, my gosh, there was um, there was tremendous speakers there. You you spoke for uh, uh, an hour, one session. Then you had the your uh, your opening comments. Um, we got you, Chris. Chris, are you there? 
No. All right. Has this worked? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Okay. okay. All right. So, yeah. so Chris, go back to uh, your. You were just about instead of doing the like a two and a half acre grid sampling, you're you're regionalizing this and go from there. Yeah. So what we've done is uh, in the province of Alberta, about 50 million acres. Uh, we took 450 soil samples throughout the province, and we were able to generate maps that can map to soil organic carbon. It combines the data that we collected at these 450 points with the 60 layers of geospatial data and another uh, about 200 additional layers of geospatial data and um, is using a machine learning process to then draw these maps that have roughly about uh, a 30 meter resolution in uh, most areas and where on the farms that we're doing the sampling, we can get to a five meter resolution. Meaning that, you know, as we go across the landscape, every five meters, we could see if there's a difference and be able to measure that difference um, based on this. From satellites? From, yeah, we use a, a combination of satellite imagery, drone imagery, um, we use uh, previously collected data uh, that's open source type of data and information looking at uh, climate data and um, topographical data, uh, a, a number of different types of data, again, as well as uh, what we have for open source data. And the great thing, uh, actually, Canada has a... Oh, hold on one second. Okay. Um, the the data that we have for Canada is actually far more limited than the data that we have for the U.S. So we've done a preliminary mapping. The team that I work with uh, has done a preliminary mapping um, in the U.S. and they have about nineteen thousand soil sampling points in the, the U.S. that they have open source data on. Now, it's not all data that is exactly the same. Um, we have data uh, that we have that our, our sampling scheme, we go down to a meter depth when we take our soil samples. Some of the data is only the open source data is, you know, usually zero to six or, or zero to 15, zero to six inches, zero to 15 type of a thing, but we are taking all of that data. So it gives us a, essentially about um, 100,000 additional pieces of information for the US. And then we can create these maps. And in the preliminary maps, what it does is it allows us to uh, move both back in time, and then we can utilize that information to project forward. So we can look at comparisons, um, for example, uh, we zone we zoned in on we um, zoomed in on a, a farmscape in uh, Iowa in which they had basically taken a, a pasture out and put it into tillage, and we could see the, the the carbon predictive mapping and the management changes that were happening um, lined up almost perfectly. In, in this, so we can really be able to see how that management change happens. But what I'm excited about this is that. Goodbye, Chris. We're back on. We lost Chris. Okay. Um, we'll hope, Chris will hopefully we'll come back. If not, John and I will take this to the end. Um, so, John, let's talk about the conference. Um, you were up on stage, you were talking about this, this uh, collaboration, this idea you've got, um, a manual, a, a book on how to uh, so basically rewrite agronomy, you know, so let's talk about that, because this so is important. You're going to have both Chris and I in the middle of something really big at the same time? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, so um, I wrote an editorial for Acres USA. Uh, and by the way, if you're not subscribed, uh, you really should be because that publication has radically changed oh. course since I've been editor at the beginning of the year. That's right. And folks, it's because of this guy right here. I mean, let me. I'm gonna, before you go, John, I, I was invited to come and speak 
at an event that is that is for organic growers and i am trying to figure out how to do this with no tillage and to me that is a huge step forward so thank you for allowing me to be there and it, it also tells me in the world that you're you're you guys are really trying to, to change things there so thank you they are changing yeah, yeah they are changing sorry yeah. i interrupted you chris is back I no, didn't go get ahead. to start on the really big project. No, go right ahead. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to Chris in a minute. All right. So um, the the big project that we're that we're speaking about or that I'm considering is uh, when we look at uh, if you want to learn about agronomy today and you open any agronomy textbook uh, or any plant nutrition textbook, whether that's mineral nutrition and plant disease or horse marshners or petra marshners, third edition of mineral nutrition of higher plants, uh, or really any of these books, there will always be an opening chapter or an opening paragraph talking about how plants absorb nutrients from the soil using water flow, mass diffusion or diffusion or, or water uh, movement. And then how these soluble ions, it's always the context, the conversation is always framed in the context of soluble calcium and magnesium and zinc ions. And is then moved through the plant's vascular tissue and absorbed into cell, through uh, into cells through the cell membranes using um, channels and what are called channels, ion channels, and ion pumps. Well, we've known for some time that this model doesn't work mathematically; like it just simply doesn't compute. But it has kind of kept its tenacious hold because it hasn't yet been replaced with anything better. Well. Uh, we now have the foundational pieces for a new form of agronomy. And of course, the foundational challenge that all of us, uh, we have collectively as a group with this form of agronomy is that it completely ignores biology. It's exclusively chemistry based. And now that we have Dr. James White's work on rhizophagy and that we understand um, Chris Nichols' work on, and many others' work on mycorrhizal fungi and Jerry Pollack's work on exclusion zone water and how that might contribute to the transport of living microbes in plant vascular tissue and an understanding of endocytosis or perhaps other mechanisms for how plants are plant cells are actually absorbing whole bacteria or yeasts into the cells there is a need for a new understanding of agronomy this this new model that is biology centric needs to have a it needs to have a primer it needs to have a simple pamphlet booklet explanation to say this is what the agronomy of the future is going to look like that is biology centric rather than chemistry centric. And um, so at this event, I put out an invitation for collaboration for folks who would desire to help participate in putting that together and reviewing it, critiquing it and helping it develop its final form. So I would extend that invitation to anyone, obviously, to uh, connect and to help bring that about because it's something that is badly needed. And I'll tell you what, uh, for our, for on our end, we'll have Rachel put on our website, we'll have Rachel put a link into yeah. your, wherever you want it to go to yeah. so that people can sign up. And, and I, you know, I also think about this, John, as maybe open sourced, you know, maybe I think it's exactly what you want. Well, it's collective wisdom sourced. Yeah. Like all of us together are smarter than any one of us individually. Yeah, exactly. We need that. We need the collective. That is for sure. Um, Chris, hang on just a second. Um, let's see, De Deanne Lazinski, she's on every time. Deanne, how you doing? Uh, let's see, what was Dr. White's stance on manure or liquid manure being applied and the plant's ability to engage in rhizophagy? Does it hinder the communication much the same as synthetic in fertilizer? Um. It's my understanding, he wasn't asked that question directly, and I've not had that conversation with him, but it's my understanding that it's the solubility that matters. So is it a soluble material, and is it going to have a high electrical conductivity that has the capacity to burn microbial cells mm. as a result of some combination of sodium and or chloride and or bicarbonates and or nitrates and ammonium? And if the answer to that question is yes, then it almost certainly will have a negative impact on biology to some degree. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. Um, you know, oftentimes when uh, sort of a simple way that I look at it, when we are adding nutrients that are highly soluble like that, it is really outsourcing the jobs of the microbes. And so, you know, anytime we're, we're outsourcing the jobs of the, the, the bacteria that are 
functioning into being able to provide uh, some of the, the nutrients that are not in that normally, you know, highly soluble type of form. And so how is it that we can actually work with the system as a whole to be able to get the nutrition that's coming from um, all of these different sources and utilizing the biology to be able to get it there. It doesn't mean that those soluble forms of nutrients could be absorbed by the other microbes in the system and become part of their biomass and potentially providing nutrients in the future through necromasks and other, other types of, of nutrition long-term. So, you know, when we're looking at this entire system, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't be utilizing these soluble forms of nutrients, but we need to look at them in a different way in basically how they could feed into the cycle of nutrients through different living organisms, as opposed to replacing the activity of the living organisms. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And another comment that I would add, because many people do have manure to deal with, um, is that it's not that difficult today by putting in very relatively small amounts of humic substances or biochar or complex forms of carbon to remove the solubility of those elements and uh, make a potentially harmful material at least benign or more likely even positive. Hmm. So it's not expensive and it has tremendous soil and crop yield benefits. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to think about that. Um, I think I, I, I would you also go so far as to say think like could you add something to say glyphosate to offset some of the the harmful effects of it or is that possible? Maybe, but why choose? No, I'm just in, in, if you're still in that world, I guess, but uh, you're being tough on me tonight. We're choosing to not be in that world anymore. We're creating yeah. a new reality that completely displaces the old by being so much better. So why are we talking about that? All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Done. No more. No more. There are now organic herbicides available like caprylic acid and others, which are very, very effective. And they're not as inexpensive as glyphosate, and they're probably never going to be. But they are every bit as effective as glyphosate. And so yeah. there's... There's tools. Well, I was, I was just going to add too that you know the other similar to what you were talking about, John, as far as adding to to the manure, humics and uh, biochar and other materials, is you know also taking the option of composting, uh, the manure, um, you know, and and that's you know another way of being able to to manage that. And if you are concerned about. Um, you know, multiple types of, of other issues that you might have with utilizing that manure, uh, you know, when it comes to potentially, depending on what it is that you're growing, worried about potential human pathogen types of issues, or if you're worried about weed seed types of populations, being able to, to compost the material um, can be another way of being able to manage that manure. Uh, it also can be much more GHG beneficial to be adding, um, so greenhouse gas emissions uh, coming from the newer, adding the biochar and adding the, the humic materials, but at the same time, you know, composting can do that as well. Yep. So, since we're on this topic, I think there's a story that is relevant that I'd like to share. Um, we work with lots of farmers, Amish farmers in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where for many years, and I think even still mostly to this day, there was a prohibition against the use of skid steers. And as a result, the community largely went in the direction of using liquid manure for their um, dairies. So there's a tremendous amount of liquid dairy manure in the area. And the expectation, we know all the downsides that liquid dairy manure or liquid dairy pit manure pits can have from an odor perspective and everything else. And um, so, and the expectation commonly is that liquid dairy manure has the capacity to kill earthworms. Like they expect when they spread liquid dairy manure to see dead earthworms the next day behind the, the manure spreader. And so a farmer asked one of our growers, a customers that we were working with to spread manure on their fields. And they were hesitant because they really cared about biology, but they did give him permission. He spread one load. Uh, had a really bad odor, spread a thousand yards up to the house or 500 yards up to the house. And um, so this 
grower we were working with had some of our humicar, which is a humic substance material, and he took a five-gallon bucket out and asked him to mix it into the rest of his liquid manure lagoon before continuing spreading, which the farmer did. Took the product home, dumped it into the pit, agitated it, kept on loading, kept on going. Thirty minutes later, he was back in the field with the next load. So that humocarb was mixed in at a rate, uh, a five-gallon bucket into 50,000 gallons of liquid manure, one gallon <laughs> per 10,000 gallons. By the time the next load was spread, there was no odor, and there were no dead earthworms behind the spreader the next day. There was this immediate, and there was no plant burning. It was spread on an alfalfa field after the third cutting, and the first load burned the alfalfa crop, the second and all the consequent loads did not. So there's this immediate difference that was made by a tiny amount of material. So those are examples of how small amounts of complex carbon can have an outsized impact at the right time. Yeah, that's 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 tremendous. See, because when you know you, you're out and you try to tell people we've got to stop applying twenty thousand gallons at a time, at least break it up to multiple times, and and then add products like that. So awesome. That's awesome. Um, let's see here. Uh, what was the name of the organic herbicide that affects uh, that of, that's effective like glyphosate? Is it uh, caprylic acid? That's the active ingredient, um, and I forget the brand name of that one right now. But uh, again, you should subscribe to Acres USA. Um, there's actually two review articles coming out in the next couple of months on all of the various organic herbicide options that are available because this is a, obviously this is a, these are tools that are very much needed. And the space has evolved dramatically in the last couple of years. There are a lot of products available now that are quite effective that were not available even a year ago. So um, there's lots of opportunity in this space that people are really going after. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, the, the future of this is so promising. Um, it, it's going to be the way that, that it's going to be the way farming is going to have to be. And I totally believe that. And we're going to just need, we need more people like John and Chris and, and all the folks out there telling the story of why this is going to work. And, and then the, the biggest thing that I see, though, guys, that we're missing here is the teachers. We don't have enough teachers, I don't think. I mean, you're working on that. What's your opinion well, of that? My opinion is that everyone knows something that I don't know. And everyone knows something that I would benefit from knowing, except this guy on the motorcycle. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think all of us, when I started down this pathway, I was told that I'm never going to know everything. I just need to know enough to help the person that I'm trying to help. And uh, if we all accept that every one of us, if we accept that everyone knows something that I would like to know that I could benefit from, the flip side of that is I know things that other people would benefit from as well. And so all of us who are in this space, by the very nature of the fact that we have an interest and are actively seeking to learn and educate ourselves around the principles and the science of regenerative agriculture, we also need to be the teachers. We need to not just be students, but also be teachers. In fact, the very best way to learn something is to try to teach it to other people, because that's when the learning really starts and that's when it really sticks. So um, I think that's our only halfway forward. It will happen whether we uh, actively engage or disengage, disengage, we are going to be asked to be the teachers. We yeah. need to be. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think that, uh, so sorry, my flight's just getting delayed, which is a good thing because <laughs> um, I, I don't have to cut out early. Um, but I think that I, we, we do need to all be teachers and we need to all be sharing and talking and interacting and integrating our, our conversations and, and being very collaborative. Um, and I think that that's a, it's an important thing. And I, you know, I learn a tremendous amount every time I get the opportunity to speak with farmers and ranchers and, and other growers that are out there. And you know, that's the best education that I still say that I had have had in my life is is being able to to talk with farmers and ranchers and other growers. So, you know, being able to have these conversations and share this, you know, even if you don't think that you're very good at it or 
Um, you know, you don't have a lot to share. You do have a lot to share. And I think that we need to, at the same time, keep, um, keep pushing the ideas and the concepts that, yes, you know, we are using, not always using uh, new concepts and new ideas, because a lot of this stuff is old. But that doesn't mean that that what we're doing is old and ancient and that young people shouldn't be excited about it. I mean, you know, as I as I discussed, there's a huge amount of opportunities for um, engineers, uh, both mechanical engineers and uh, computer engineering to, to happen and technology to be growing, to be able to do these things. What I was talking before about the predictive soil carbon mapping. Um, being able to collect soil samples and analyze those soil samples far more efficiently and effectively, um, utilizing new uh, spectroscopic technologies, utilizing technologies to evaluate uh, not just the soil, but the nutritive quality of what it is that we're producing. All of these things offer tremendous opportunities, I think, for young people to get involved. And young people have looked at agriculture as oh, you know, that's just farming and field work and it's, it's hard to get excited about it. But I think, you know, we need to keep pushing this idea that there's, there's a tremendous amount of things to get excited about. Yeah, I, t I totally agree. Totally agree. It's a whole different wave of, of farming is coming on the horizon and it's, it's closer than we think. It, it definitely is. Uh, it's about this close. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> John, I want to, you, you made a comment uh, yesterday about phosphorus at the conference. Um, talk about phosphorus a little bit, <laughs> how little there is left, the importance that it plays in the system here, and there's plenty of it below our feet, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I started in this space 15 years ago, I was reading these reports on the state of the fertilizer industry that stated that there were between 20 an estimated between 25 and 30 years of known phosphorus reserves left to make fertilizer out of <laughs> at that point well that was 15 years ago and now there's in the last couple of months i read a recent report that said that there are roughly 10 years of known phosphorus reserves left and that the reserves that they are now using are of significantly lower quality, lower density, and have much higher uh, concentrations of potentially toxic elements like cadmium and other elements in them. So that's what we're using to make fertilizer. And when you think about what that means, um, if we keep, and, and you know, the piece, the piece that is so short-sighted of us is that there has been no change and technological innovation, no, there's no foresight being put into this collectively by the industry to say, uh, we need to figure out what we're gonna do when we hit the brick wall before we hit the brick wall. It's like we're continuing to move full speed ahead, continuing with standard phosphorus fertilizer application rates. So I don't know, that seems very incredibly short-sighted to me. The, the upside of that, of course, is that if we keep on this pathway in 10 years from now, there will be no choice but for everybody around the world to figure out how to use mycorrhizal fungi. It's <laughs> exactly right. It's exactly right. Uh, so in your opinion, I know this, we do the regenerative practices, we do everything we need to do, we work with Mother Nature, all these things. Do we need to worry about P and K? Is it, is there, is it, is it there? Well, it depends on the soil. I and mean, most of our agricultural soils and Midwestern soils will have abundant levels of P and K. But you get into some context with really sandy soils and soils sure. that have low mineral value. There are places where we do need to add phosphorus fertilizers in some form. Uh, it might be in the form of rock phosphate. It might be in other forms. But there are geological contexts in which phosphorus and potassium application are relevant. Yeah, yeah. Again, context goes back to you know, the principles of soil health, you've got to, you've got to follow all of them. Um, Chris, what, what, uh, what do you think about phosphorus? And it, it's, uh, I know you, you like to talk about it. So tell us what, what, how it plays its role here. Well, I, you know, I echo everything that, that John was saying about phosphorus. I mean, we're, we're, we're running out of mineable phosphorus um, and have, really run out of a lot of the easily mineable phosphorus and you know where there is mineable phosphorus 
is not necessarily the, the easiest or the best places to be mining phosphorus from. So there's a lot of geopolitical things that are involved in, in that as well, just in the same way that we've had geopolitical issues now with nitrogen fertilizer this last year and, and that going forward. Um, and so, you know, when people, people have asked me a lot of the times within regenerative agriculture of are we going to mine all of this stuff out of our soils and are we going to lose everything out of our soils? And I said, no, you know, I agree with John. There are some places where, yes, we do need to potentially be adding some nu nutrients to it. But for the most part and for most of, of North America, in fact, we don't have an issue where we're going to be needing to add nutrients to it. Um, so, you know, we need to be starting to work with and cycling the nutrients that are there. But we also need to be, you know, part of this planning for the future that, you know, it hasn't been done, but part of the planning for the future is that we need to be integrating livestock back into operations because that's a way to be able to continuously cycle nutrients and uh, continuously cycling uh, phosphorus in particular. Um, so being able to have more of these integrated systems is going to be incredibly important in the future. And there are going to be places that, you know, in addition to uh, other animals, livestock, um, we're going to have to be also utilizing waste that comes from every animal, including ourselves. Um, you know, uh, the, initially a lot of fertilizer that we had came from uh, bat guano and uh, other um, animals in the system. Um, and so we need to be looking towards some of these other resources. And looking at encouraging, and that's why oftentimes when I talk about managing livestock as a principle to soil health, that doesn't always mean that you need to have uh, a grazing herd that you're operating, but also integrating a number of different animals, managing the system to encourage increasing bat populations, encouraging other types of wildlife, because they're going to be bringing those nutrients on. The other thing is, is that we don't just like we don't account for well or at all the nutrients that are in the soil and in the rhizosphere and being cycled in the rhizosphere, we also don't account for what happens via atmospheric deposition. Yeah. And so, you know, when we're talking about running out of phosphorus, what we're talking about is running out of mineable phosphorus. Right. It doesn't mean that phosphorus has left the planet. It just means that we don't have this readily available phosphorus fertilizer source, but we are still getting nutrients that fall through atmospheric deposition. We're going to continuously do that. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm an advocate for greater pollution, but it means that that's the way that systems have always cycled. Some of their nutrients have been through dust and, and atmospheric deposition and, and animal integration. And so we need to be looking at those things. And, you know, otherwise, again, you know, one of the things that I've said is our other choice is somebody's got to invest in some really good equipment to be able to extract phosphorus out of the Gulf of Mexico. And that's not going to be a fun thing to do. But, <laughs> you know, if we're going to continue on this path, that's what we're going to end up having to do. And that's not going to be cheap or very much fun. Which will also give us an economic incentive to figure out how to utilize mycorrhizal fungi, but not just mycorrhizal, but also... Uh, bacterial organisms that have produced high concentrations of the phosphatase enzyme or the phytase enzyme or some combinations of those. Like there are a bunch of phosphorus reserves in most agricultural soils that we can figure out how to release with. And lots of folks have already figured out how to release. It just hasn't been commercially applied yet because yes. what we're doing now is easier and doesn't require change. It's comfortable in other words. Yeah, it's time to get uncomfortable. The price of fertilizer still needs to go up. It needs to go way up. <laughs> it needs to go way up. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> also, let's see, what else do we want to talk about? I just, I had it and I just lost it. I lost my whole thought. I was thinking about something else. Uh, Were you admiring the sycamore tree? I was. It is. Well, that's better this, than admiring me. This is beautiful. It's, it's awesome to be here, folks. <laughs> We're in Napa Valley. I'm sitting next to John Kempf and I got Chris Nichols on with us. This is, this is unbelievable. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about uh, tillage. This is such an important thing that I, I, I don't understand yet. Um, I, I want both of your perspectives on tillage. Um, we're trying to do a system at home of raising crops with minimal to no tillage, and this is hard. It's very, very hard. So I want to start with you, John. Give us uh, what, I mean, I know this, it's a loaded question. What are we doing? What crop are you going to raise? Where are you at located? But let's talk a little bit about tillage. What do you think about tillage? I don't want to talk about tillage. I want to talk about dogma. Dogma. Yeah. And I'm of the persuasion that taking a position that something is always universally good or always universally bad is a really bad position to be in. So yeah. I think you might want to revisit your perspective that you want to do everything with zero tillage. Now, that may be the right thing for some context, some environment, and some crops. But in other crops, it may not be the right thing. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love making you uncomfortable. You're being hard tonight. You are being difficult. Um, uh, so my, my thoughts, yeah, I expressed my top thoughts on tillage. I think that um, it is, look, what's the goal? What's the objective ultimately? The, the ultimate objective should be to develop stable soil aggregation to the greatest depth possible as rapidly as possible and maintain it without destroying it. Yeah. And the question is, does tillage contribute to that or detract from that? And I'm of the persuasion that there can be times and places where it can be a positive contributor to that. When it's properly done with the right tools at the right time, the right moisture conditions, everything has to be correct. Yeah. But it can be a positive tool to contribute to that process. Far too often, the way that tillage is misused and abused, and it has the opposite effect. It is a negative absolutely to be avoided. So. There's my uh, very undogmatic position in general. Okay. All right, Chris, what, what are your thoughts on it? Well, this is going to make me very unpopular probably with most um, mycorrhizologists. And considering the fact that mycorrhizal fungi, I tell people all the time, I fell in love with the fungus when I was 19 years old. And I have yet to fall out of love with said fungus. And I included um, that fungus in my wedding vows uh, yep. when I got married and I, I wear a, a wedding ring that has uh, amino acid structures because I studied a protein that was produced by the fungus. So I, I, I'm into the fungus deep, all right? And given that, um, I think that there, there are times and places for tillage, as, as John was indicating. And I think that, you know, we need to look, and I, I appreciate, you know, you saying dogma. I say a lot of things about soil science dogma and how, you know, we, we, we shouldn't have dogma. Dogma should not exist um, in, when it is that we're talking about, you know, how these complex systems work. There is no dogma. Um, but the, the whole idea is, is that we've looked at natural systems and we say to ourselves, we need to have our agroecosystems perform and treat them exactly like natural systems. And so we want to have as little disturbance as possible and we want to do these no-till types of operations. And the reality is it's, it's the same that we did in forestry where we restricted fire from forests. Natural ecosystems have evolved with a certain level of soil disturbance. And so when I talk about the soil health principles, I refer to it as, you know, soil disturbance more than I do tillage or no tillage. And it's, you know, reducing or, you know, eliminating tillage, but still in having soil disturbance. And I think that, you know, in some cases, we could manage soil disturbance without tillage for a needed area of soil disturbance where you, know, you can use animal traffic uh, in the same way that nature has used animal traffic to do a certain level of disturbance because tillage can be that disturbance can be a reset mechanism, just like fires were a reset mechanism for forests. That's you know, a lot of the ecology that's involved in that. So I think that you know, when it comes to tillage, we can't do the dogma of no. Um, but we need to be looking and making very judicious decisions about doing tillage. Um, when I was explaining this actually to, to someone, um, a young person last evening about tillage, 
And she's like, you know, why, why do people get upset about tillage? And I said, well, you know, from the perspective of the microbial community and especially uh, the mycorrhizal fungi, when you do tillage, you have the potential to rip off some of my limbs and to destroy the aggregates and the habitat that I live in. The potential, it doesn't mean that you do it absolutely every time, but that potential exists that that can occur. Right. Now, I can be fine. I can still live and I can regrow limbs if you give me the resources and the time to be able to do that. So when I think about tillage, this goes back to something I had mentioned this and um, we were discussing this a little bit, Rick, in this FIST acronym that I apply and tillage is about the easiest one to apply it to where frequency. So frequency, right. intensity, scale, and timing. So frequency. If I do a, a deep type of a tillage that may be more destructive to a larger volume of soil, but that is going to get rid of a perennial weed issue that I have, and I won't have to do multiple tillage passes throughout the year, that's actually going to be more advantageous to the microbial community. Because although it was very destructive one time, you ripped off some limbs and you destroyed my habitat, you're giving me the opportunity to be able to regrow. And if you're, that also includes adding um, cover crops or adding some more intensity to put some more carbon below ground, that's going to be advantageous that you're going to be having. So thinking about how the tillage tool that you choose to use impacts the frequency of the tillage, because the more frequent tillage, that's where we're going to start to see a lot more of the, the destruction and the disruption. Now, the other thing with tillage is we know that when it comes to native lands or, or very undisturbed lands, when we do tillage, there is a very big loss of organic matter out of the, that environment. Most of our agroecosystems have already lost 50 to 75% of the organic matter that they started with. So when we're doing tillage and we're losing a little bit of organic matter from those environments, it's, it's much smaller than that initial huge loss of 50 to 75%. So if we can keep it where, you know, we're, if you're doing it, you're doing a, a less loss of carbon. And then again, you're adding carbon back in through how you're doing the management and compensating for that potential loss that's going to be favorable to the environment. And when we're thinking so frequency, using tillage tools so that you can reduce the frequency, the intensity can be how fast you may be doing tillage. So how fast you may be driving. It's that punch, that intensity of that punch that's happening. So modifying, depending on the need that you have to address the issue that you have, modifying how fast you're driving equipment can reduce the amount of disturbance that you have. Looking at the scale of the, the tillage that you're doing. So what type of implement it is that you're using? How does that impact the different types of, in, of um, amount of soil volume that you're actually impacting? So, you know, the, the intensity is the, um, a, the force that's there and the scale is sort of the whole entire volume that we're looking at. And so, you know, are there different ways of doing this? I was recently on an organic farm um, in Saskatchewan and uh, the farmer there was talking about with his alfalfa that he goes out and utilizes a, a wavy disc to um, not terminate, but sort of set back the alfalfa so that he can then go in and plant his annual cash crop into that stand of alfalfa. And that wavy disc, we were having a discussion on just how much different that wavy disc may have on an impact of the volume of the soil as opposed to a, a, a straight disc, you know? And so when you're looking at these different types of implements, thinking about that whole idea, and then the last thing is timing. Tillage, maybe something that you need to do, but can you time it to have the least amount of impact on the soil biology and the greatest amount of impact on the issue you're trying to address. 
And so if you're looking and, and sometimes, yeah, those timing, that timing may overlap, but if it is that we can look at how we could address it, it's going to provide us with a lot more opportunities, I think, to be able to integrate tillage into a regenerative system that is going to allow it to be able to thrive and cycle nutrients and build up organic matter and carbon. Chris, I really liked the one word that you said, um, or the one phrase that you said that tillage is a reset tool. And when you think about it, that's really what it is for. It's either as in the case of the alfalfa you described is to kind of reset the crop or, or the, the vegetation that's there or is to reset the soil. And so when we think about it from that context, we, we can always ask the question, what is it that we're trying to reset? And then um, I, I also really liked a comment that Sarah made in the chat, which is another piece that's really important is what is it that you do immediately after? What happens immediately after tillage? So we know if, if we have soil that has a compaction zone down deep that we need to get past by using a tillage tool to break it up, then what needs to happen immediately after is a cover crop with the type of root system that can prevent that hard pan from reforming. And so it's, it's those types, uh, I think those two points are, are worth reiterating. You made them very well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that helps. Um, as you both know, I'm a very stubborn person, so. Um, that's why I had to tackle you in public because doing it in private would never have worked. I know, I know. <laughs> so, it 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 um, it's important though that that we follow these principles, and we have to also understand how to fully utilize those principles. And I I thank both of you for helping explain, in my opinion, the very first principle, which is minimize disturbance. So. Um, Thank you, and I appreciate that. That gives. A bit, I'm already thinking about how to change how to how to change that in the system now. So, um, uh, Lauren Steinlogge, who who's a, a frequent guest on this show, also has been texting me back and forth, and and he's asking about the reset. Basically, what you just said. It it it, it just is is taking like that perennial weed problem, Chris. We've got we've got a weed at home that is it's my fault. I brought this it's not a weed it's a species of a perennial it's my fault i brought it in at the very tail end of our chemistry days it's chicory and i can't stop it now but i can stop it if we use some tillage and it's going to require at least four inches deep of tillage to get underneath and slice that crown well sometimes we're going to have to do that because the if you look at those fields that are infected with chicory they are not profitable so this is not a system that's working you need more sheep need more sheep sheep are good and also alfalfa is good because that that 24 day cut it will start to eliminate that perennial and it, it, it will give up but on the flip side of what that perennial can do for your soil structure is unbelievable yep. that deep root that tap root and at the surface that roots about that big around and I don't know how, I mean, it, it's got to go 10 feet in the ground. Now, Rick, I want to stretch your boundaries here a bit. Well, you already have. Do you know that you can sell chicory herb for like $4 a pound fresh? We've got plenty of it out there. There you go. <laughs> You're selling the wrong plant. You need to start farming chicory. We need to start who, farming Who says chicory? you want to grow corn? I, I, I don't know if I want to grow corn. I'm not joking. Chicory fresh herb is 4 bucks a pound. Yeah. Well, we've got a, we've got a bunch of it. Um, you know what? I, I, I want to be respectful of everyone's time here. John has had a long three days. Chris, you're at the airport. I, I, if there's anybody with the question, now's the time because we're going to head to the home stretch here. Um, I want to get closing comments from both of you. I'll start with Chris. Chris, what do you... I know you're excited about the future. I can see it in you. I see like a new, you're re-energized here. I can see it. Uh, what, are you, what are you thinking? Where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want this movement to be in five years? What, what do you think? Well, I think that we have a, a, a tremendous amount of potential. And I say this frequently, I'm a, I'm a pessimistic optimist. I am incredibly optimistic about our potential, but I'm pessimistic about our willingness to act. Yeah. And we need to 
we need to accelerate this um, adoption of more regenerative practices. It's not a one size fits all type of thing. It doesn't have to all be the same, um, but we need to accelerate the adoption of this and, and utilizing every mechanism that we have out there to get that done. Um, because, you know, five years from now, you ask about five years from now, and I, a week and a half ago, had a long conversation with someone where I said, you know, I, part of, they asked me what I thought of the future of U.S. agriculture, and I said, you know, unfortunately, I think the future of U.S. agriculture is that, for the most part, most of the agriculture is going to be based on continuously selling four different commodities, corn, soybeans, wheat, and cotton. Cotton market isn't going to continue too much, so it's going to be mostly corn, soybeans, wheat, and we're going to end up, you know, basically most of that is for its low-quality animal, animal feed and industrial products, and you can't have a, a, a viable country that isn't growing food, but is growing low quality feed and animal products on um, low quality feed and industrial products, I should say, on, you know, 750 million acres. Right. And that's, that's you know, a lot of where it is that we're at right now. There's about 900 million acres in, in the United States and, and most of it is growing these things. And yes, there'll be a global demand for low quality feed. It's not that that's not gonna go away for probably 50 to 60 years. But the reality is, is that you're gonna be paying, farmers are gonna be paid pennies on the dollar for that. And I hope that we can really work to figure out our way out of this. And I think that one of the other big things that I would like to see us do, and I talk to a lot of um, large food companies and I'm like, you know, what you need to be looking at is investing in the infrastructure to help to support farmers getting out of this area that they're stuck in corn, soybeans and wheat. And that's what it is that we really need to be doing is, you know, I, I'm working on a carbon project and I'm passionate about carbon and, and growing soil and, you know, being able to leverage some of that economics. But I think that, you know, when it comes to some of these large companies that are trying to invest in carbon markets, they should also be investing. One of the, the best investments they can make is investing in infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, very well I, said. I love that mantra, low quality feed and industrial products, low quality feed and industrial products. Like I heard that, that, that needs to be a chapter or the title of a book or needs to be put out there. That's really good. Yeah, very <laughs> well exactly said. That's what it is. And you know that, that, that low quality feed goes into those animals and then we're eating that animal that's a low quality diet for us. So it's just an endless cycle. So. Well, Chris, thank you. Hang on, just stay right there, John. Take us, take us home. Um, what, what, you know, what do you, what do you really, what do you want to see in five years? What do you think? Here's, we live in interesting times. We know the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Well, that's where we are. So we have lots of chaos and turbulence in the markets and supply chain issues with nitrogen and and uh, herbicides and. These can be perceived as negatives, but if there's anything that I've learned in the last 15 years, it's been that people are not driven to make change based on the opportunity. They're driven to make change when they're forced to under duress. Mm -hmm. And that's sad to me because I'm, I'm not like that. I've never, I've always been driven and motivated by opportunity, which is why I started down this pathway 15 years ago. But um, 15 years ago, if you would have asked me, I would have said that I expect regenerative agriculture and these these different way of thinking about agronomy is first going to become most popular in California and the fruit, nut and vegetable production regions because there is so much upside. When you when you embrace this approach to agronomy, you get better flavor, you get better aroma, better shelf life, better storability, all these positive quality attributes that are a really big deal for fruit and nut and vegetable growers. And they mean a lot in terms of dollars and cents, as we have proven with, with much of our work, often making growers uh, increase returns of thousands of dollars per acre. And 
So I expected that to happen in the California and the fruit and vegetable production regions first. Well, we were wrong. I was wrong. It's happening and being these this regenerative approaches are being adopted most widely, most rapidly in broad acre commodity crops under duress. When growers become financially stressed to the point or health stress, whatever the case may be, to the point where they're kind of forced to make a change. If you look at where we are in the regenerative agriculture adoption right now, we have a fraction of 1% of all farmers are considering this type of approach. And so these, if you look at the diffusion of innovations, these are who the people we would call innovators or early adopters. And they're making this change because they're being forced to change, not because they want to for the most part, but because they were at first forced to. The majority, not true of everyone, but it's true of many. And so when you look at that, what that means over the next five years, um, it could give us heartburn about all the chaos and turbulence that we see in the world. And at the same time, I also see a lot of opportunity in that. If we are forced to change because phosphorus is no longer available, that can be a good thing for the planet in the long term. It's unfortunate that it has to come to that. But if that's the pathway we choose, then that's our choice and our responsibility. So I'm actually very optimistic about where I think agriculture will be in, in five or 10 years from now, because I believe we're arriving at a place collectively as an entire industry where we no longer have a choice. We will have to change. Yeah, very well said. Thank you. Um, we do have one late question that came in. Uh, Kyle Schnell from Iowa. John, I've so far made four passes on my corn with a quarter pound of uh, solubor. My, S, uh, my SAP tests are still telling me I'm low in boron. What rate do you think I can go with to be safe? Depends on your calcium levels in your soil. If you have high calcium levels, you can use higher levels of boron. You can go uh, on a corn crop. If you have at least 1,000 parts per million of calcium in your soil, you can easily put on four ounces of actual boron per acre, which would be a pound of solubor uh, without causing any problems. Very good. Thank you. Folks, I want to. We're gonna. We're gonna say goodbye here, Chris. Thank you so much. It was great seeing you in Sacramento. Thank you for being at the airport. Greatly appreciated. John, as always, you're a good friend. Thank you. Thank you I've, I've enjoyed. Thanks for letting me poke you. you you're welcome. You are welcome. <laughs> I, I need to be poked. Believe me. So, folks, thank you. Everyone, have a great week. Thanks for joining. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you all. Bye.